Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity and Education. I am Allison R. Brown, and I am your host. Radical Health. There have been reports about the dangers of racism and its impacts on the health of people of color in this country. There was a recent set of reports out of Wisconsin, the University of California, and Kaiser Permanente about the devastating effects of stress and racism on African Americans' brain health. To be healthy in communities of color in this country is to be radical, revolutionary even. So how does radical health connect to education justice? That's what we're talking about today on Schoolhouse Equity and Education. Our guests this week are community organizers and recently took part in a trip to Cuba that the Communities for Just Schools Fund supported. During that trip, grassroots organizers and others explored questions of radical health and justice directly related to the incredible work that my guests do every day. I'm so excited to welcome them. Elmo Gomez is an organizer with the Labor Community Strategy Center in Los Angeles. He organizes young people and other community members on issues related to the school-to-prison pipeline and mass incarceration. Welcome, Elmo. Thank you for having me. Ivelisse Andino is a community organizer and digital health strategist. Ivelisse founded Radical Health in 2015, and it is the first Latina-owned B Corporation in the Bronx. Welcome, Ivelisse. Thank you so much for having me today. So, you know, we talk a lot on Schoolhouse about community organizing, and at the Communities for Just Schools Fund, we support organizers, groups that are really pushing for and bringing about change in their neighborhoods and communities. Elmo, will you help the audience to understand fully what is community organizing? There's many ways of organizing and many theories and many practices on on how to organize Mm -hmm. and what to organize for. Particularly the way I organize is I try to organize people to a larger strategy by having them participate in local tactics that affect conditions on the ground for people. And so organizing is going into the community, understanding what the community's needs are, but we're also trying to push the consciousness, the leadership and the organization. We're trying to get them involved into an organization. And that's what organizing looks like for me. I believe what does organizing look like for you? It really means coming together around a common idea or belief or feeling and using the collective power of people to invoke change. That doesn't mean that all of our ideas, all of our goals will always be the same, but it is uniting people together to impact for the greater good. Elmo, what is the Labor Community Strategy Center and and how have you specifically been working to eliminate the school-to-prison pipeline? At the Labor Community Strategy Center, One of the earliest ways we try to get rid of the school-to-prison pipeline is as basic as trying to get a bus pass for a student, Mm -hmm. right? There's a huge denial of resources for young people when it comes to what does it mean to obtain resources versus the accessibility to policing in Mm -hmm. our communities or in our schools, right? So something as small as a bus pass can have an effect on how a student contributes to his school life, especially if the application for a bus pass is 30 pages long, Mm. but, you know, the availability for a police officer is right there at your door. Mm -hmm. And so what does it mean to really have access to the resources that actually suppress your education 
and don't do good for your education, but the things that do are not as accessible as they should be. Mm-hmm. And so this is how we've taken on the school-to-prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. We've been also able to challenge policies in L.A., that are historically one rooted in the black codes are historically rooted mm-hmm. in Jim Crow and the reenslavement complex that really targets specifically black and brown students mm-hmm. and black and brown schools and criminalize them for over a period of time using the idea that if we do this, we're going to get rid of larger criminals, we're going to get rid of larger crimes, which is not true, which is not what ends up happening, but you end up creating a new pipeline of community members being incarcerated and being put into the re-enslavement complex and to mass incarceration. So a lot of things that we have done is, one, we have been able to delineate the role of police from what police could do with students on campus and what they could ticket and target students for. Another thing that we've done is we've been able to amend policies that target students for things like truancy, for things like um, the usage of tobacco, the fighting. These are things that are common in schools that are seen as a criminal act instead of from the perspective of health. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we've done is we've also been able to demilitarize what our schools look like. When Ferguson happened, Ferguson Police Department received military weapons that they used to suppress protesters for the murder of Mike Brown. Mm-hmm. And what we saw when we went to Ferguson was that we discovered that our school district also had military weapons from the same program. This is a program and where the school basically should have had a vote for it, should have asked the public if we should get these military weapons, but they didn't. It took them one page to get these military weapons. Mm. It took them a paper that says what they want and why do they want it and a signature, and that's all they needed. So Elmo, I want to stop you and underscore this point that it takes a 30-page application to get a bus pass for students to get to school and a one-page application for local school district police to get military weapons from the federal government. You know, this is where we talk about accessibility to criminalization, but mm-hmm. not accessibility to pre-job or pre-med and not being pre-prison. That was our recent victory. So we've been also been able to decriminalize student behavior. You know, student behavior is seen as, as something that needs to be criminalized, nothing that needs mm-hmm. to be counseled and nurtured and to be able to really create and push out or bring out of schools educated students and students who know how to deal with society. That's not what our schools do. Our schools criminalize students for their behavior. So one thing that we've also been able to do is here in L.A., we've been able to pass the School Climate Bill of Rights that basically offers for the first time in the nation eight new rights for students. Mm -hmm. One of them is being able to not get suspended for willful defiance, Mm -hmm. which was one of the largest suspension categories for black and brown students. And we didn't just see it as students being kicked out of school, but we also saw it as a form of denial of education, Mm -hmm. something that is rooted in the racism of education. Another thing that we've been able to do is basically students, if they are suspended, they can now challenge that suspension and say that I was wrongfully suspended. That, in a lot of places in the United States, is very unheard of for a student to be suspended and have the parent come and say, I think my child was suspended wrongfully, like, is never known to happen in a lot of places in the United States. Which is a deprivation under the Constitution of of due process rights. Right. If a student is being deprived of 
what the state has chosen to provide in the form of free education and then decides to deprive a student of that right, then the student has a right to due process to understand why that happened and to appeal that decision or should have that right to appeal the decision. And you're saying that did not exist before the School Climate Bill of Rights. Absolutely not. I really appreciate this framing, Elmo, and I appreciate what you've shared, especially about the history and really rooting the work that you're doing now in the history of the Black Codes and really understanding that this is a a reiteration of what we've seen before. And one of the things that has historical reality and historical resonance is, you know, the idea of health and radical health. And will you just talk a little bit, Elmo, about what that intersection of radical health and education justice looks like for you? You know, health and radical health really looks like, you know, it's having to deal like, okay, how do I explain this? I think I want to start off with a joke. (laughs) There is this joke that we say in schools, you know, that you have access to a police officer 24-7 almost, mm-hmm. a school police officer, right? From bell one to the end of school, you have access to a police officer. But you could only get sick for a lot of schools only on Tuesday and Thursday. Mm-hmm. So one thing sometimes we tell students, make sure you don't get sick on any other day besides Tuesday and mm-hmm. Thursday, because those are the only days where you have a nurse in school, right? right. That's just a small joke that we say, but a reality of just how health is not prioritized in our schools, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Things like psychologists, things like trauma counselors, things Mm -hmm. like therapists or doctors aren't even prioritized for our schools, are not even seen as an option at times, and are times a struggle to fight for for our schools. Even our own people, the idea that this is what we need for schools because most of our people are even sometimes comfortable with policing, and it's a hard work trying to push the consciousness out of policing and trying to really shift consciousness to what does it mean to have healthy, environmentally friendly schools for students and teachers. And sometimes it's hard pushing that consciousness towards that direction because we don't see it. Avalise, will you just give us a bit of context first? What is radical health? And I mean that in both ways, right? What is your... B Corporation, Radical Health, and what does it mean and look like to be radically healthy for people of color in the U.S. today? This concept of radical health, but also the organization, really began and and we operate right now with the mission to return the work of healing Mm -hmm. to historically underserved people through community. Mm. And we do that through community organizing, community co-creation, and technology. Mm-hmm. And the key is that we integrate our lived experiences, our collective resources and services, and we share that all enabled by technology to make sure that people of color have access and have pathways to accessing the social services mm-hmm. that they need, but also the clinical services. I think, you know, as we look at Elmo's example about getting a bus pass and, and the just the process that that is, whereas we can easily, you know, have access to, you know, police or, you know, junk food and all these other things. And when we look at that systemically, radical health really, what we aim to do is work with others who have lived experiences. Um, So accessing social services, accessing 
community healers, um, whether that's alternative practices, but also very clinical. So doctors or nurses or healthcare providers that care and leveraging those people who have gone before us to help pave the way, but to also knock down some doors to make sure that we all have access and that we're changing the tide, the way health is perceived in America, in the USA. Mm -hmm. Something to note, a quick fact is that Kaiser Permanente did a great study about social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. And what we know now is that zip code is a bigger indicator to your health than genetics. Can you just repeat that? I believe say it again, please. Yes. Your zip code where you live Mm -hmm. is a bigger indicator to your health than genetics. Mm. And so that is, you know, where you live based on the community's poverty is going to determine whether or not you are more predisposed to diabetes Mm. or heart failure or even your life expectancy. So here in New York City, if you live in the South Bronx, you will die four years earlier than if you lived just a few miles, literally across a small body of water in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And people don't have any choice over where they are born, and they don't have any choice over their genetic makeup. And where they are born will provide more of a forecast of their life outcomes than their genetic makeup, which goes back generations. So when you take into account all of these factors, these Mm -hmm. social determinants of health as they're clinically defined, so where we live, our housing conditions, our education system, this school-to-prison pipeline or the mass incarceration, our involvement with the justice system, when we look at our access to food, as well as the care that's received, all of these pieces are really what determines the health of our community and the health of our people. Mm -hmm. And so Radical Health as an organization, our goal is to connect people to these social services that are needed through technology and through community organizing so that when we look at our clinical outcomes, those are improving because we're taking care of our basic needs. So I believe Radical Health and Justice was a delegation to Cuba for learning and sharing And many Communities for Just Schools Fund partners were a part of that delegation. Where was the idea for the trip born, and how is it connected to your organization, Radical Health? This started out as an idea, a very crazy idea, in fact. (laughs) I am born and raised in the South Bronx, Mm -hmm. and I've experienced personally, I mean, the stop and frisk, I've experienced Mm -hmm. various experiences with the justice system and folks that have been directly impacted with the justice system. Mm -hmm. And it was speaking with the executive director of Community Connections for Youth, Ruben Austria, that we we talked about what would happen in our neighborhood in the South Bronx. We approached health and justice with a community lens. Mm -hmm. And we have great friends that work at ISCO. And so they're the ones who organize this trip, who do a lot of work with Cuba. And we had heard stories about police forces being elected by the local community and that as a requirement, police must live in the neighborhoods that they serve. We heard the idea of this model that there were local doctors and nurses for four block radius. So about every thousand people had their own doctor and nurse that lived in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. that 
went to the same post office, that went to the same, you know, area to get their food, that shared in a community. And, you know, it's late at night thinking, you know, what happens if we were to explore that further? What happens if we look at, as well as the intersection of, of health and justice? What happens when we look at these intersections that aren't, we look at them very siloed. Health is a complex in and of itself where mm-hmm. we spend $3 trillion annually on clinical sick care. The justice system is another piece where we spend over $200,000 annually to lock mm-hmm. up young people. But we never really look at those intersections combined. And more so, we don't look at the role that the community plays and how in both sectors and education as well, the community really is the one that has gone through the struggles, that has the lived experience, and ultimately, I believe firmly, is the solution to fixing what we have. One point of clarification, which is that IFCO is the Interreligious Foundation for Community Organizations. So they are a progressive interfaith organization, and they were the host of this delegation to Cuba. And Elmo, when you were preparing to go to Cuba, what was your vision of what the trip would be and mean for your work? And then what did you actually take away from it personally and professionally? Well, one thing I had to do was I had to leave my American thought here at home, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, sometimes the social norm can have an effect on trying to have a new experience Mm -hmm. in a country that practices a counter-hegemonic society, right? It has a counter-hegemonic society. And so that's one of the first things I did. I also read a lot about Cuba before, so I came in with the intentions of wanting to learn and wanting to listen and just try to understand, like the different practices that are being played in Cuban society and understanding that there are some issues that Cuba has been facing. But what does that mean for me coming from a country that is rooted in slavery and genocide and incarcerates 1 million black folks, 500,000 Latinos, and has 25% of the world's prison population, even Mm -hmm. though they're 5% of the world population, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to come from a country that has a military in other people's countries uh, and a country that's currently at war with many other countries? So this is a lot of things I came thinking about that, right? Like Mm -hmm. I came in with the intentions of coming in with this, but also trying to learn about Cuban society. And not with the idea of really trying to understand how to replicate those practices, Mm -hmm. but how the formation of consciousness and even the fight for class consciousness has been able to provide a new platform and a new landscape for a just society. I'm not justifying that everything that Cuba does is okay, Mm -hmm. but I am saying that Cuba does play a different role in how society plays, Mm -hmm. and it does offer a very counter-hegemonic vision of what society should look like. And so when you think about movements in this country... That formation of consciousness, right, and the the new landscape for a just society, as you said, when you think of the the movement for Black Lives, and the, we're now celebrating four years of Black Lives Matter, how does what you saw and heard and learned and shared in Cuba, how does that factor into the quest for freedom in this country today? I think that, you know, Black Lives Matter is on a very different level of organizing as well. I think I came back more worried about organizations Mm -hmm. that no 
don't think about really taking on systemic issues. And I feel like that's how I came back. Really, like, what does it mean to work in a city that has many organizations, but which organizations are really trying to build an oppressed class consciousness is a question we mm-hmm. should be asking, right? Which ones are trying to build a mindset to really try to take on on something larger, right? There's lots of organizations just in places like Los Angeles that claim that they're doing amazing work that can actually have negative side effects on how our work looks like long-term, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying any names. (laughs) I think, you know, coming back, that's what's really been in my mind. It's like, what does it mean to go for the furthest route instead of like the closest route? What does it mean to Mm -hmm. really push demands on the system, really challenge elected officials, and really look at the system from a third person view, right? Mm -hmm. Not as someone who's a Democrat or not someone who, like not seeing yourself as a Republican, but really seeing yourself as someone who doesn't benefit from either party, and how do you really challenge the system? Like, how do you really challenge the leaders that are saying they're doing great things and are not? I think mm-hmm. a perfect example, um, something that I came back that I'm really still angry about is just even our mayor, who has promised so much time for time, and is claiming that L.A. is a sanctuary city, but at the same time, it's working with ICE, mm-hmm. it's working with Metro to criminalize black folks. Mm-hmm. It's helping push out the black population out of L.A. Like, these are things we should be thinking about, right? Yeah. That's what we should be trying to build. It's, it's almost enough, not really a class conscious because we have to acknowledge that it's not just working people who are under attack, mm-hmm. but at different times. Historically, black folks have been attacked at most at times in the United States, and Latino folks have had certain aspects of oppression and historically in the United States, right? And so it's not even just about class consciousness or working class, but it's about thinking about those who are most nationally oppressed in Mm -hmm. the United States and thinking about how to take on those injustices and how to really build a strategy and how to even undo those injustices that have happened. And I release, I want to stick with this point for a minute around safety and sanctuary and the way that Elmo kind of weaves in gentrification and class in talking about conditions that actually contribute to unsafe environments and environments that are not actually sanctuary. What did you take, Ivelisse, from your visit to Cuba about gentrification? That was actually a point that I wasn't necessarily expecting Hmm. to experience. While I was in Cuba, I went there for health, I went there for culture, I went there for a few things. But what we were able to see, and very clearly at times, while Cuba is a very poor, poor country, we know this, Mm -hmm. you could see the lines being drawn with the influx of American tourists. Mm -hmm. And when you scratch that and spoke a little deeper with some of the residents there, you know, they were having a hard time because now their rents were increasing and people Mm -hmm. were trying to purchase apartments and houses. And so it was this piece, you know, where for me, what it really reflected is that I don't don't think anywhere in the world is immune, regardless Mm -hmm. of the convictions, the awareness, the consciousness. I don't think anywhere in the world is immune to the effects of capitalism, including Cuba, but also, right, the need to work within our own communities and with one another to build 
Um, and I think this goes back to that community organizing and, and to what you were saying about challenging the system and doing that through the power of the people mm-hmm. and collectively. And I think that's the one difference that I can see from Cuba to the U.S. is that they were very much people-powered and not necessarily relying on the systemic, very challenging, I think, almost that's something about, you know, working on those systemic, or challenging those systemic issues, but really focusing on the people power. Elma, I know that you work with young people there in Los Angeles. Will you share with us a bit of what you shared of your experience with them when you got back from Cuba? Well, one thing, you know, is that the system is buying our children. Mm. It's buying them with iPhones. It's buying them with apps. Wow. It's buying over their consciousness. Yeah. It's defeating their consciousness. Mm. It's destroying and dismantling any form of leadership in them. And it's really trying to tell young people and millennials as well, like, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be an individual instead of trying to think about what does it mean to be a collective and really take on something larger, right? Mm-hmm. This is kind of what the U.S. is like, right? Yeah. At times, it's it's more about the individual, right? The individual is more important. And this is, this is all done through places like school, through universities, the media, their phones tell them this every day. Mm-hmm. So it's really trying to dismantle first that, Mm -hmm. working with young people, right? And I say this all the time, like we have to win our our young people over. And so sometimes that means having a cupcake on your table with some information, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because we do, we have to buy them over Mm -hmm. because in Cuba, this is being taught, you know, the Cuban education is built to really try to build conscious citizens, Mm -hmm. to try to build conscious people in society. They don't want people to lack information, to lack knowledge. They don't want people to not know what they want to do in life. One of the things I learned that was really interesting that I didn't know about was that by age 15, a majority of, if not all young people, already know what they want to do in Cuba. In the U.S., students would be in college and they would be graduating from a four-year university and would still not know what to do because society doesn't really put a, a or value roles that really try to make a collective envisioning or make a collective decision on how to better communities or how to better ourselves as a society. It doesn't do that. It creates this individual mindset, of, which is really destructive in the organizing world, but in trying to really build a different vision for society. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that they're all like that. It doesn't mean that each young person, like, nobody cares. That's not the case. But we do have to, in some cases, like, push our people to care, right? Like, um, in different levels, you know? Um, how do we get young people to care about adults? How do we get black people to care about Latinos? How do we get Latinos to care about black issues? Mm-hmm. Something that was really big that I came back and told people about was the, the literacy campaign and how thousands of young people volunteered their children or the children volunteer themselves to really go out into the jungles and to the farms and the ranches to really try to teach people how to read and write because the Cuban government knew that if you really want to create a different type of vision for the world, then people have to first know how to read it and write the information that they're being given. Mm -hmm. And hundreds and thousands of young people volunteered for this. And when there was a real danger to the lives of of those young people, and young people were killed in this process, more people volunteered as a resistance against that type of systemic fear that they were trying to create for people. And so that was something really big. I told my mom about it, and I asked my mom, like, would you ever send, you know, my 14-year-old sister to the jungles 
did go teach people how to read and write. And she almost cringed. She almost was like, <laughs> like, and was like, I don't know, like, I, probably if she wants to, she can do it, you know. But it it took a while. And even the whole idea of, you know, not having your children around is a real fear, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so what does it mean to really sacrifice yeah. something for something larger, right? For the greater good. Yeah, for the greater good. I believe this point is really profound, this point that Elmo is making about the system is buying and feeding our children with technology. I wonder how you see that from your vantage point. How can organizers, community, young people, how can we use technology for the greater good? Um, well, no truer words have been spoken. You mm-hmm. are absolutely correct in that our young people are being purchased. I would expand upon that to say that adults, we are distracted. And I think that one of my biggest takeaways from Cuba was here in the U.S., we have this notion of independence. Mm-hmm. We are independent. We are free. But when we look at that critically, and especially in contrast to Cuba, what we are is not necessarily independent, but dependent. Dependent on a system to provide for us. Dependent on healthcare to heal us, on law enforcement to protect us, mm-hmm. on the education system to educate us. Mm-hmm. And Cuba was very, very, you know, contrary to that, where it was the people. So, yes, you are a doctor and you're healing, but you're doing that as a person for your community. Yes, there are law enforcement, right, but you're a member of a community. The education piece, you know, what we were just talking about is, yes, you know, we're going to eradicate illiteracy, but we're going to do that through the young people. Mm -hmm. And I think that the same can be done here and now in this moment in time with technology. I think when we stop looking at technology as a Mm cure-all or as a solution to eliminate people, I think we have, you know, concepts like Uber Mm -hmm. where, you know, we don't even need to talk to anyone and we have a car showing up at our door or we can order our groceries um, to our door. And it's basically eliminating the process of of engaging, Mm -hmm. of exploring, of touching. It's eliminating core features of our world and our life, pieces that make us human. Mm -hmm. I think that's the big problem, and that's the the piece that's desensitizing. But when we can leverage technology to help create relationships, when we can combine technology with people so that we're not eliminating people, we're not replacing them with a machine, but in fact we're making technology and people work together mm-hmm. and supplementing the work that we're already doing with technology, I think that's how we use technology for good. That's mm-hmm. how we have a social impact. Being my background is in technology, and so mm-hmm. we're seeing a move when we look at it like profit and, and venture capitalists. Yes, we're going to, you know, eradicating <laughs> people and, and making, you know, machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a movement growing of social impact organizations. There's a movement of, you know, socially responsible technology. And I think that that's big on multiple fronts, right? So that we can continue this in-person exchange. But also when we look at the biases that we've experienced today, if we look at historically, we know that systems are not designed with people of color or people who have been traditionally marginalized. We know that systems fail us over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at technology and where we're going with artificial intelligence, with algorithms, we need people, our people, to be at the table 
and to make sure that these systems are created to not impose any harm or to continue to perpetuate you know, these biases and, and disparities that we already are experiencing. And so I think it's an important role for individuals, for organizations to step up and be that voice and to make sure that when we are using technology, it is for the good of the people. I want to thank you both for being on Schoolhouse today. Elmo Gomez is an organizer with the Labor Community Strategy Center in Los Angeles. Thank you, Elmo, for sharing your gifts with us today. No problem. If people want to find you and the Labor Community Strategy Center, what's the best way for them to do that? They can come visit our office, (laughs) or they can come out organizing with me, or they can give me a call or email me. And Ivelisse is a community organizer and digital health strategist and founder of Radical Health. Ivelisse, thank you so much for imparting your wisdom on Schoolhouse today. And if folks want to find you, want want to look for you online, how can they do that? You can visit our website at www.radical-health.com or see us on social media. Our handle is at WeAreRadHealth. One thing that I forgot to mention, we're going to be doing another delegation for 2018. Mm. It'll be Radical Health and Education. So largely inspired Mm. by the wonderful people you sent down. Uh, we want to do another turn this time, but looking at the intersection of education and health. And again, you know, immersing ourselves in that culture and in the beauty and in sharing with others in the arena. And that will be in 2018 in Cuba, a radical health and education delegation. That's exciting. Correct. Good. So for anyone who's interested, you can sign up at the website um, and we'll take it from there. And remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and find the Communities for Just Schools Fund at cjsfund.org. Thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful week.